our world is in trouble. Society is full of noise, darkness, and distraction. Where do you go to find the hope and the strength to cope with such a mess? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Friedrich Nitschke once said, He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. And folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by way of email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what's the topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, are the wicked winning? And our theme text is found in Psalms chapter 10, verse 11. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Okay, so the question again, are the wicked winning? Oftentimes, we look around at the world and think how horrible things are. Yet, more people have more advantages now than at any time in history. The average life expectancy throughout the world has dramatically increased, and in most countries, technology is in the hands of the average person. All of this, as the desire to live in a God-honoring Christian way, has severely decreased, especially in developed countries. So, if so many good potentials for the human race exist— and Christianity is on a downward spiral, then is it logical to conclude that life without God and Jesus is better for humanity? What? (laughs) Yeah, I bet you didn't see that one coming, did you? (laughs) Well, you know what? That's an important question to ask, because we've got to look at this whole thing, and that's part of what this podcast is uh, today. So folks, coming up in today's podcast, when we look back on 2018, it sure seems that there are too many images and memories of wicked and dark behavior. Has America and the world just walked away from fighting all of this? In our second segment, we're going to look at biblical predictors of wickedness, and the really curious connection between it and technology. Our third segment brings us a profound discovery as to how and why wickedness grows. We seem to be at a point where it seems useless to fight. Anyone can continuously stream anything at any time. In our fourth segment, we're going to uncover the frightening similarities that the Bible reveals exist between our current day and the past. How do we fight? Uh, being inundated with darkness? Well, we'll give you some concrete answers in our final segment. But first, is the world really a worse place than ever, or is it really a better place than ever? Jonathan, that's a big question. And so let's go to work on that particular question. Uh, first, let's start with uh, someone who's done some research on this. Um, okay. His name is Steven Pinker. This was an NPR interview. Uh, uh, and he's being interviewed about a book that he wrote basically saying the world is less violent than ever before. So we're going to drop in on this interview uh, a a few times throughout the podcast. Let's listen. Uh, The only way you you can really answer the question, has violence gone up or down, is to count. 
how many violent incidents have there been as a proportion of the number of opportunities, and has that gone up or down over the course of history? And that's what I tried to do in the book. I looked at homicide, looked at war, looked at genocide, looked at uh, terrorism. And in all cases, the long-term historical trend, though there are ups and downs and wiggles and spikes, is, uh, is absolutely downward. The, the rate of violent crime in the United States has fallen by more than half in just a, a decade. The rate of uh, death in war fell by a factor of, of 100 uh, over a span of uh, 25 years. Okay, so he's giving a kind of a almost a glowing report in some ways. That That's interesting. It, it, it is. Now, he's, now let, let, let's understand. He's focusing on violence. Okay, you know, our question was a little bit broader. Is the world a better place or a worse place? Violence is part of it, but it's not all of it. So let's begin with some statistics. Uh, this is from OurWorldInData.com. And these statistics, Jonathan, are clearly going to tell us the world is a better place. And let, so just, let's just go through this and kind of discuss what, what, what they're talking about. Life expectancy has increased rapidly since the Enlightenment. Estimates suggest that in a pre-modern poor world, life expectancy was around 30 years in all regions of the world. In the early 19th century, life expectancy started to increase in the early industrialized countries while it stayed low in the rest of the world. This led to a very high inequality in how health was distributed across the world. Good health in the rich countries and persistently bad health in those countries that remained poor. Over the last decades, this global inequality decreased Countries that no longer go along with suffering from bad health are catching up rapidly. Since 1900, the global average life expectancy has more than doubled and is now approaching 70 years. No country in the world has a lower life expectancy than the countries with the highest life expectancy in the 1800s. Okay, that last line, there's a lot here, but that last line is really significant. No country in the entire world right now has a lower life expectancy uh, than the countries with the highest life expectancy back in 1800. So our worst case country in the world is better than the best case country in the world in 1800. That's well, staggering. that's good. It is. It's good. I mean, life expectancy throughout the world is approaching 70 years. Way back then, it was about 30 years. This is enormously different. So you look at that and say, wow, the world is looking pretty good. It's looking pretty positive. People are living longer, very obviously. And the other thing in these statistics that was important and, and very interesting is that the idea of good health in rich countries and bad health in poor countries has begun to even out as well. So well, that's good. That yeah, is very good. So there's a lot of really good, positive things happening along the way. And remember, our question is, are the wicked winning? And when you look at this, you'd say, well, this looks pretty good. Okay, so the world is better. Or is it? Let's look at something else. Let's say now the world is worse. Uh, this, these statistics we're just going to touch on briefly were summed up by one of our CQ researchers. And this comes from a government data report on depression and anxiety and, and things like that. And, and what our researcher did is he sort of summed up three different tables, table 10, table 12, and table 13, in this lengthy, lengthy report to just give us a, something to really, really focus on. So 
in this report, it covers the, the time span from 2008 and 2009 through two, and compares it to 2016 and 2017. So the first thing to notice is that's a really short time span to make a comparison. Really short. So Table 10, Jonathan, what does it show? Table 10 shows an increase in mental illness in every single age group when comparing the years 2008 to 2009 and 2016 to 2017. So every single age group in the last eight or nine years has a higher, has an increase in mental illness, a higher rate of mental illness. Well, that's not good. No, that's, that's kind of, that's, you would think that because of the knowledge and the technology, that would be going the other way. You would. Okay, but every single age group. What's the next table show, table 12? Table 12 shows that every single age group saw an increase in suicidal thoughts during the same time periods. You know, now I don't know exactly how they define suicidal thoughts, but the idea that every single age group is increasing along those lines, that's alarming. That is, that's heartbreaking. Because, you know, it's not just feeling bad and feeling, you know, a little bit off or, or, or a little bit depressed. This is, this is much deeper. Every single age group in the last eight or nine years has shown an increase in that area. And then he um, talks about one other table in this, Jonathan, table 13. Table 13 is quite shocking. 2008 to 2009, major depressive episodes from the 12 to 17 age group was 8.22%. In the total U.S., and in 2016 to 2017, it was 13.1%. So from ages 12 to 17, major depressive episodes... 8.2% to 13%. You say, well, look, it's only 8 to 13%. Do the math, that's a 61% increase in just eight or nine years. Folks, something's wrong with that picture. Absolutely. Ages 12 to 17. So you look at that and say, oh, man, the world is a worse place. Now, the previous statistics were, well, the world is better. Here, it's like, oh, the world is worse. Okay, let's cheer us up again, okay? Let's go to the next point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our world is better. Uh, a one-line statement from Wikipedia says, as of June uh, 2018, 55.1% of the world's population has internet access. And then they have a, a little table that shows the growth in internet access. So, Jonathan, we're just going to touch on three, year, three specific years that they outline and, and three points. The year, the world population, and the percentage of users worldwide who had access to the internet. Let's go back to 2005. What was the population? Well, Rick, it was 6.5 billion. Okay. And at, in, for that 6.5 billion people, how many had access to the internet in 2005? 16%. Okay, that's not a lot. 16%. Jump ahead five years to 2010. What does the world population jump up to? Well, that grew to 6.9 billion. So 6.5 to 6.9. What's the percentage of worldwide internet usage? Wow, it went up to 30% versus 16% five years earlier. Wow, that's huge. That just about doubled. It goes, it went up. It, it, it's, that's incredible. 
Now we jump to 2017. They're saying in this, this, these statistics, it's an es- estimate. How many people? 7.4 billion. And what's the user uh, popul- uh, percentage of the Internet? It's 48%. So now, and the last one we read, you know, when we started this little piece was over 55%. More than half of the world has access to the rest of the world right now. Whereas just 13, 14 years ago, 16% did. So you look at that and say, wow, the world has got to be a better place. So we talked about the, 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 the increase in length of life. That's good. We talked about depression. That's bad. We talked about internet access. That's good. So let's depress everybody again, shall we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. And folks, there's a point to this. Okay. There, because you, you look at all kinds of ways to measure the world. Is it better or is it worse? Here is a statistic that says it's far worse. These statistics are taken from uh, www.fightthenewdrug.org. And this, frankly, is about pornography. And the statistics that you're going to read, Jonathan, were lifted right off of a very specific, very large uh, pornographic website. What, go, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. There were more than 28,500,000,000 site visits to this really massive porn site last year, which equates to about 3.75 visits per person on Earth. And this is a huge uptick from the year before, considering that this really massive uh, porn site only received about 23 billion visits in 2016. Only? Yeah, an increase of more than 5.5 billion visits last year. That's a difference of 64 million average visits to the site per day in 2016 versus 2017's 81 million average visits a day in 2017. Long story short, that is a lot of visits, and that's a big increase from the last report. That is utterly disturbing. You know, and another statistic that I, we didn't put into the notes, but I remember, and it was either from 2016 or 17, was the uploads to this particular massive site, uh, the, the uploads that were added to the content. If you were to try to view those uploads, you know how long it would take you? Just in one year's worth of uploads. It would take you 24 hours a day. It would take you 68 years 68 years. That's how much stuff is there. And Jonathan, to put it in perspective, we've been doing Christian questions for 20 and a half years. Now, granted, Mm -hmm. we do, we started out with an hour a week, and that was two, and now it's an hour and a half. So I took about an hour and three quarters over 20 and a half years, 1,056 episodes. It would take you 24 hours a day, 77 days to listen to everything we've ever said. (laughs) And that is 68 years. You see, wow. so you look at that and, and the darkness that comes from that, and you say, wow, the world is a worse place than it was. You know, we could continue to go back and forth for hours, and the conclusion would be the same. The world is better than ever, and the world is worse than ever. Whichever way you might want to lean in this discussion, we should be able to agree that Christian values have lessened on the world stage. And I think that's one of the points that in determining evil in the world today, we need to really focus on what's happened to true Christian values and why and what does that mean? The noticeable absence of God and the seeming victory of evil is not new. We're going to go back to Psalm 10. 
Psalm 10 is going to be kind of our theme for the podcast. So there's 18 verses. We're going to do the first three right here. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Okay, this is begging God. Why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You know, a lot of people today say, well, if God is there, he should show us where he is. Back in the days of the Psalms, it was the same thing. Looking and wondering and saying, where is God during all of these things? And it says, you know, the wicked boasts of his heart desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. And it seems like it goes unnoticed and uncared for. It was that way then, and it's this way now. Folks, we need to focus on a very specific phrase we're going to come back to each and every segment, and that is winning against wickedness. So just to get us started, Jonathan, what do we do to, to start this winning against wickedness? Well, Rick, while all of the history of humanity has witnessed wickedness, the age of technology lets us witness in countless new and diabolical ways. And they are instant and they are viral. So we are in a time where wickedness is what it has been, but we can see it bigger, brighter, faster, more dramatically uh, than ever, ever, ever before. So with all of the good that comes to us, the bad seems to outshine it. What do we do with that? We always talk about the dire conditions of the final trouble. How can it be dire if there is good? We're excited to be hearing from our growing listening audience at ChristianQuestions.com through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also chat with us now during the live broadcast. You know what would be really awesome? If you can leave us a review when you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and others. It helps us reach even more people. Thank you for subscribing and reviewing. Now, let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. Part of understanding the plan of God is realizing how broad and far-reaching it is. There is no human development that is beyond the sights and planning of God. He created humanity in His image to be creative, thoughtful, and to be able to choose. He also he allows all of these things to have a wide breadth of experience because His ultimate plan is for our learning and are growing. And we have to be cognizant. We have to understand the ultimate plan of God is bigger than what's happening today in front of us. And Rick, that's what a loving father would do, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And, and, you know, God's plan, because he is so much bigger and, and essentially timeless, it takes time to unfold. So are the wicked winning? You know, if you were, so, so Jonathan, I'm just going to throw that question to you. If I were to ask you, Jonathan, are the wicked winning? What, what would your answer be? Well, evil is winning in this world, but it can't win because God has everything in control. Okay, so let me, let me rephrase that answer because what you said, <laughs> no, here's what you said. You, you essentially said evil is winning, but it can't win. So right. evil is ahead by, by the score, but yes. the game's not over. No, <laughs> okay. it is not. Well, and, and I think, and that's an important point. And the scripture, all things work together for good. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and we have to understand that in the broad picture. So now let's get back to Psalm chapter 10. Uh, Let's go to verse 4. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That's a powerful, powerful statement uh, when we look at wickedness, especially in the world today, because you look around, and isn't that one of the resounding statements? Absolutely. There is no God. Well, look, the wicked here in Psalm 10, certainly begins with Satan. And his pre-Satanic fall, remember he was known as Lucifer, his pre-Satanic fall was a growing, festering, and deadly thought process. And that thought process sought to abolish God's sovereignty over humanity. And that just reminds me of that phrase, there is no God. Let's look at Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, as a prophecy of what happened in Satan's mind. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. So God knew Satan's desire and actually allowed it to take temporary hold. Rick, God's temporary seems like forever. (laughs) It does. It does. And that's a really important observation. It seems like forever. And it seems like, yes, the wicked are winning. Well, look, you may check the score and it may not be in, in your favor, okay? But the game is not over, and honestly and truly, framing this as a game is not even appropriate because it's already a predetermined outcome. So this is thank the, God. So so instead of let me let me back up, you know, because I didn't think that through ahead of time. I admit. So instead of framing it as a game, let's let's frame it as the the destiny of humankind, and mm-hmm. along the 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 timeline of the destiny of humankind what we see is a time when it looks like it really is irrecoverable that's now but the destiny is not over yet and so we're going to see how the wicked are not winning but they certainly seem to be and that is one of the great deceptions of all time let's go back to psalm chapter 10 uh verses 5 through 7 satan and the wicked ways prosper at all times Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. So, you know, it gives you the sense of not only Satan, but those who follow wickedly in his way have this incredible arrogance. Rick, they are mocking God yes, every exactly. day they can, yeah. and we see it, we hear it. Right, and, and, and it becomes part of public discourse to be able to mock God, and for some reason that's not politically incorrect. It would be politically incorrect to mock anybody or anything else, but God? Oh, no, 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 that's fair game. You know, so I, I, you, you look at this, and this psalm written so many thousands of years ago is such an apt description of the attitude of arrogance that the wicked carry. So now let's take a look at the time we live in through prophetic eyes, because Jonathan, this is going to reveal something, I think, 
astounding about wickedness. Okay, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 and 4. Now, Daniel is going to show the results of this wickedness growth in these prophetic end-time verses. And he's going to start with the end, and then he's going to go back and fill some things in. So, Jonathan, we're going to, I'm going to really, I'm going to be at my best interruption, Rick, okay? <laughs> okay, all right, here we go. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Okay, so let's pause there for a second, okay? Michael shall stand up. We see that as a picture of Jesus, standing up for his people, the great prince who stands for the children of, of God's people. And then it says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was. So that is unmistakable in its description. A time of trouble like you have never seen. There have been, Armageddon is another way it's described, yeah, isn't it? So, so we have seen lots of times of trouble in the world That's th- right. through history. But this is going to be different. This is going to be uh, a time of trouble such as never has been seen. And he says that at that time, his people will be delivered, everyone found written in the book. So there, in conjunction with the trouble, there is a deliverance of God's holy and chosen people. And now... Uh, we're going to jump down to verse 4 because it's going to kind of go back in time just a little bit. So let's go to the first part of verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. So close the book even to the time of the end. Now, the time of the end is a really important phrase because the time of the end is not the end of time. But it's the time of the end of this particular age in which wickedness is allowed to reign and in which the gospel has been introduced. So if we look at our present world, the present evil world, we can trace it, uh, a big change from the coming of Jesus and the establishment of Christianity through right here and right now. The time of the end, and we're not going to get into how we determine this, but we look at the time of the end beginning with the year 1799. And that begins the end times. It doesn't begin the time of trouble, but it begins the end times. In, and that's a period in which things change dramatically. So let's take a look at that and see what, what we can understand. So it's not clearly meant to, to be understood that... Um, uh, well, let's, let's read the, 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 the final part of verse 4 of Daniel 12. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. So Daniel started this particular prophecy talking about the time of trouble. And then he says the book is closed until the time of the end, and therefore its understanding will only be opened in the time of the end. And this is where we are, and are this, these understandings have become plain to us now. So the other part of this that is that there is great increase in knowledge. And when it says many shall run to and fro, you know, it's like, what are they, running around like chickens with their head cuts, heads cut off? Rick, it's talking about transportation, yes, isn't it? It's talking about the ability to go places and knowledge shall be increased. And that's such a simple statement. But when you look at this, you know, what we have is God's prophecy 
shows the allowance of a mixing of great knowledge and great evil. The knowledge comes first, and the great evil comes afterwards. And Rick, what wisdom our Heavenly Father had and has for his eternal plan? It is. You know, it it gives us a sense of if you can step back from where we sit and the experiences that we're seeing and we're saying, oh, it's awful, it's awful, it's awful, and we can realize it's God's providence, give it time. But this prophecy, Jonathan, shows us the power of it because it says, in the time of the end, knowledge shall be increased. Men shall run to and fro. What happened during the 1800s? Oh, the increase of knowledge, Rick, um, in like the 1870s onward, really shot almost straight up in the Industrial Revolution. It was amazing. And and I don't think that that has slowed down since. Well, and as a matter of fact, it has actually sped up, you know, um, um, geometrically when you think about the, the increase of knowledge now versus the 1800s, versus the early 1900s. Uh, one of the founders of IBM in the early 1900s, I think his name was Tom Watson, said, and I don't remember the year, it was the early, early 1900s, he said, everything that can be invented has been invented. What? <laughs> well, because they had cars, they had telephones, they had all of these things, you know, a switch turned on the lights, and you're thinking, how much greater can it get? When the Bible says there's going to be a great increase of knowledge, it meant a great increase of knowledge. And then it says... And at the end, there's a great time of trouble, a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Put those two things together. Knowledge ends up perpetuating trouble. God's preparations were in place for all of this, this trouble, when Satan's rebellion was only in his thoughts. Remember earlier in the segment, we talked about what was going on in the mind of Satan. Revelation 13.8 gives us a sense of God's pre-planning like you were just talking about. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Okay, so it's talking about Jesus, obviously, and he says, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What is, well, first of all, foundation, what does foundation mean? Well, Rick, it means founding, figuratively, conception. So the idea of the world was sort of in blueprint stage, Foundation of the world. What does world actually mean? It means orderly arrangement, that is, decoration. So the orderly arrangement is the way the world works. So when that was in the planning stages, the ransom essentially was already paid because the evil thought was already beginning to percolate. Jesus was a willing sacrificial lamb from the moment there was a shadow of doubt cast upon the harmony of God's creation. So God pre-planned the way out when the way into the trouble was just being planned. Wow. That's a great God. That's amazing. <laughs> okay. And, and, and Jesus also refers back to the prophecy in Daniel 12 in terms of trouble, Matt, in his prophecy about his return, Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So he's quoting Daniel. So again, Jonathan, let, let's take a moment before we begin to wrap this segment up and just go back to Daniel, because he says, in the end times, knowledge will be increased. And as you go through that period of knowledge increasing, 
he says there will end up a time of trouble um, such as never was since there was a nation. So he's telling us knowledge increases and so does trouble. Right. And, and there is a combination between those two things. So when we ask the question, are the wicked winning? Why are we going down this road? Because God is telling us how it all works. He's telling us what goes into and comes out of the, uh, the, the, the development and the thoughts and the imaginations and the creations of mankind. And he's saying as good as they get, they will also bring darkness with them. And that's exactly what we see now. The knowledge gets set and begins to build, and then the trouble begins to catch up. And then the knowledge grows some more, and the trouble catches up. So it's really kind of a fascinating thing. So when we look at winning against wickedness for this segment and looking at sort of the God's beginning description of what to expect, what, what is it? Sin eventually brings unprecedented trouble in spite of unprecedented knowledge to the orderly arrangement of God's creation. Okay. Sin will eventually bring unprecedented trouble in spite of incredible, incredible, incredible knowledge. Jonathan, if you took, and, and we've talked about this before, just a quick, a quick side note. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having uh, a, your credit card or a check card or anything be hacked by somebody. Have you ever had that experience? No, I, ha I haven't. Have you? Yes, a couple of times. And it's really, really, A, it's kind of scary. B, it's aggravating. And C, you, it makes you really think. Because how do people do that kind of thing? And my point is, people who do that are smart. They are way, way, way smart. Imagine if they could use their intelligence for something good. But technology allows us to use all of our intelligence and all of our creativity just as much for something dark as it would be for something light. So when you say, are the wicked winning? You say, sure looks like it, because whenever there's that positive breakthrough, there's the negative recourse that follows it. So we want to be really careful in understanding that, yeah, you look at the world and it looks like the wicked are actually pulling ahead. And you say, well, how can that possibly be? Well, it's because of knowledge. God said knowledge will increase. And he said the result of that great increase of knowledge is actually going to be this time of trouble. So, you know, it actually makes a whole lot of sense that knowledge clearly feeds wickedness. Sensible, but still scary. So, how is wickedness described in the Bible? Isn't it painfully obvious that we should avoid it? Learning about your hosts is always a good thing. Rick and Jonathan both love studying the Bible and sharing their thoughts with you every week. Did you know they've been doing this program for over 20 years? It started as a radio show in 1998. We moved to an exclusive podcast in 2016 and have enjoyed talking to all our listeners all over the world. Plus, these guys are best friends and longtime students of the Bible. That's part of why our Christian Questions team of volunteers and listeners feel like it's a big family. Talk to us anytime and hear over a thousand archive programs at ChristianQuestions.com. Now, let's get back at it. What's next, Rick? We do generally think that pinpointing wickedness is a simple and obvious exercise. As we now look at some of Jesus' own warnings against it, we're going to see a subtle expansion of what evil is and does 
that will shed a whole new level of light on just how insidious Satan's approach has become. So I guess, Jonathan, one of the, one of the, one of the lessons for today is to pay really close attention. Because in God's Word, we have the answers. But a lot of times they're not just sitting there on the surface saying, oh, pick me. They're, they're sitting there in the details and the ways things are developed and talked about in Scripture. And that's what we really want to pay attention to because that's where we'll find the answer to the wickedness that seems to be winning in our day. And, you know, Jonathan, now, as in all times before, the wicked are dark and devious. Psalm chapter 10, again, back to the Psalm, chapter 10, verses 8 to 10, and it gives you this sense of dark and devious, very unseen, unseemly behavior. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. And, and you know, you look at that, and that's pretty dramatic, and you say, well, you know, the wicked aren't generally sitting out in the streets and in the villages hiding in an alley waiting to jump out at you. But what they do, just getting back to the hacking thing we were talking about, is they lurk in the dark corners of the world of technology, and they wait. They bait you into clicking on something that you shouldn't. They 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 send you an email that looks like it's from a friend of yours, and then you click on the attachment, and now suddenly they control your computer, and it's going to cost you two hundred dollars to get control of your computer back. That's waiting in the darkness to get you while you're unawares. That's a modern day picture of what Psalm ten verses eight to ten is talking about: catching the afflicted, uh, drawing them into his net. That's what happens. So let's make no mistake. It may not be out in the street. It is. But a lot of the wickedness now is, 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 takes place in people's minds. And because of technology, the thought process that I have here, I can extend to you without moving from my desk. Wow, that's scary. It is. It is really scary. Okay. But, you know, Steve Picker, Pinker uh, from NPR, the NPR um, – interview the world is less violent you know is saying that but it is less violent and he's right about that let's go back to him another portion of his interview and you say this is a worldwide phenomenon well it's 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 highly uneven if you certainly choose the most violent parts of the world at any given time they're going to be pretty violent but if you count the number of parts of the world that are violent versus those that aren't then you see that the world is becoming more peaceful uh the the impression that some kinds of violence have gone up over the last five years has some truth to it. Because of the Syrian civil war, the rate of death and warfare has drifted upward a little bit in the last five years. There has been a small increase in homicide in the United States in the last three years. But both of those figures are at a fraction of what they were in the 70s and 80s. Okay, so again, he's talking about violence, and that is one aspect of wickedness. Normally, I think most of us think about wickedness and we think about violence and violence as the expression of wickedness. I submit to you that it's much broader than that. And that's what I, what I think we're going to begin to see in the, in the next verses as we uncover the question, are the wicked winning? Jesus' prophecy of his return, we, we alluded to it in the last segment in Matthew chapter 24. He, in that prophecy, compares our day to Noah's day. 
So let's go back to the actual account of Noah's day just to get a sense of what it actually looked like. And again, we're not going to dwell on this, but there's some very important key points we want to focus on from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5, and then verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So it says the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty wow. graphic description, right? It certainly is. I certainly. mean, it's, it's like you're not even coming up to take a breath. That's what it sounds like. So you have this dark evil that's perpetuating itself and growing and growing and growing. It's a constant. Right, right. And it's getting worse. So now when Jesus uses Noah's day to compare to the time of his return, he doesn't focus on the evil. He focuses on something entirely different. He basically says life went on until sudden destruction. And this is odd because the reason the world was destroyed was because evil was rampant. But here's what he says. And we're going to combine uh, one verse from Luke chapter 17 and then a couple of verses from Matthew 24. Same subject matter of the prophecy, but they just, they just make it flow a little better. So stop after the Luke rendering just for a moment, then we'll go to Matthew. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. So you think, just as it happened in the days of Noah. So you'd be expecting the next verse to say... And, evil. Yes, evil, right. Evil. <laughs> right. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's what you expect Jesus to be focusing on. But here's what he says. We're in Matthew 24, 38 and 39. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the presence of the Son of Man be. So, Jonathan, in those verses, he didn't mention evil. He did not, not once. So you think, wait, wait, wait. Is he talking about the same Noah? I mean, what happened? No, evil was the primary thought in the destruction of that, of that world. He was talking about what normal life looks like. He said they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until day the Noah entered the ark and then, you know, it all ended. He doesn't mention the evil. And you say, well, wait, is that a mistake? Is that an oversight? Is that something that Jesus didn't think through when he said it? Or is there something deeper that we need to go find? See, see, Jonathan, to me, it sounds like Jesus' point is that life was normal and then destruction came. And when you define normal life before the flood, it was evil continually. That's right. Okay, so let's take that point. Let's hold it for a second because the prophecy uh, of Jesus' return. And remember, he's talking about, as it was in those days, so shall it be when I, Jesus, return. So, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the translations, we're not going to get into this, but just a side note, a lot of the, the translations say, you know, so will it be in the, in the coming of the Son of Man. 
But that word coming actually means the presence of the Son of Man. So when this time of trouble we have talked about is present, so is Jesus. Just it's just it's a it's a it's a paradigm shift in terms of thinking, but it gives you a sense of he's saying, here's what's gonna it's gonna be like when I come back. It's gonna be like the days of Noah. And then he doesn't talk about the evil, he talks about eating and drinking and you know, marrying and giving in marriage, and then destruction came. In Luke 17, the same discussion about his return, this is a prophecy of Lot. Remember Lot having to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what he says in Luke 17, 28 to, uh, actually 28 and 29. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling. They were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So let's think about this for a second. He talks about the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and how does he describe those days? What were they doing? They were living life, eating, drinking, buying, and selling. It Rick, again, he doesn't bring out the evil in that day, in that city, does he? No, but the reason the city was destroyed wasn't because they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. It was destroyed because of dark, dark evil. And we know that when we go to Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. You know, and the interesting thing is, um, God has these two angels that are going to get Lot out of the city. And they stop by and see Abraham, and they say they, they tell him what's going to happen. And then you have that famous interchange between Abram, Abraham and God. And he's saying, oh, dear God, are you really going to destroy that city? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Wouldn't you spare the city if there are 50 righteous? And what's God's answer? Sure, I'll spare it if there are 50 okay. righteous. And so, you know, Abraham's going, yes. And then he started to think, well, wait, what if there's less than 50? Oh, God, please don't be mad, but what if there's 40? Would you spare the city if there's 40 righteous? I mean, okay, it doesn't have to be 50. What if it's 40? And what does God say? Abraham, I'll do that. If there are 40 righteous, I will spare the city. So so Abraham then is thinking, okay, what if, but wait, what if it's only like 38 or 37? Oh, dear God, don't be mad at me. And we're obviously paraphrasing this. But what if there's only 30? Would you still spare the city? I will spare the city if there are 30 righteous. And then Abraham is saying, okay, I've got this thing, but what if it's a few less? So you can see that he is really unsure, but he wants, he, he's trying to protect. So he says, God, what if there's just 20? Please, 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 please. What if there's just 20? And what does God say? I will spare the city if there are 20 righteous. And then Abraham's final plea comes to, okay, Lord, please. it's, it's basically, please, Lord, have mercy on me now, because I know I am overextending my asking, but what if there's only 10? I will spare the city if there are 10 righteous in the city. And there weren't, and he didn't. The point, Jonathan, is the evil was deep and dark, and Jesus doesn't mention a word about it. And so, you know, you see by Abraham's interchange with God that it was just, just so far gone. So, so, so what's the point here? 
Why does Jesus not mention the evil? Well, you know, it's the wicked, beginning with and driven by Satan and his objectives, that have been systematically working toward an environment that shows us a new normal, which also happens to work without God. See, in both cases, Jesus is saying life, as you said a couple of times already, life went on normally until destruction mm-hmm. came. Yes. So what we need to do then is we need to challenge what normal is. And folks, if we can get this into our heads, the definition of normal tells us the state of evil. So let's just make three simple observations of Jesus' warning for our times, because our time is the time of Jesus' return, based on the days of Noah and Lot. Three, three points, Jonathan. What's the first one? Well, Rick, life looks as it should, yet it contains an inherent darkness if it is godless. So you look around and life looks godless. And it is normal. And, and folks, we have come to a place that more than ever before in history, we have come to a place where normal is very, very, very much a godless approach because I have become the God of my life. It is my choices, my thinking, my, my, my emotions even that govern things and forget, forget about God. So life looks as it should to us because this is the, the world you're, you're, you're growing up in. But if it's godless, then there's something wrong with it. What's, what's the second point? Society has purposefully walked away from God, and now that is what's normal. You know, when you look back, and, and, and let's just focus on the United States for a bit. I mean, you know, we know the recent history of the United States because we've lived it. You know, you and I have been around the block several times, right? Yes. <laughs> More than we'd like to count, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. So when you look back to when you were a kid and you look at the world now, what are are some of the differences? Just just from your own eyes, Jonathan, in your own life, you're a kid, 10, 12, 14, 15 years old, and the way the world works and what the expectations are, and you look now, what do you see as different? Well, I saw more of an innocence uh, in the world than, than there is now. And now I see a blatant, in-your-face evil that's being presented as if it's good, Rick. Yeah, and I think that's a really great way to describe it. Um, there was, there's an innocence that is lost. And you go back to the statistics from the first segment about um, the idea that um, the, average, uh, the, the average teenager is having these deep, dark, depressive episodes a 61% increase in that in the last eight or nine years. That's alarming. The, somehow, innocence is gone. Well, where did it go? It went into that, it went into technology. And te- increase of knowledge, Rick. Yes, yes, technology took it and reorganized it, and suddenly we were no longer so innocent. The third point, observation of Jesus' warning for our time. Those who seek to remain godly must not be a part of this new normal. Now, that's hard because it's like saying, well, don't be a part of the world. Yep, that's exactly what it's saying. (laughs) That's hard. (laughs) It is. It is. So how do we not be a part of this new normal? You know, I think that one of the things we need to do with our children is to train them up 
in a God-fearing way, in a way that has reverence, that has respect for the older generation, that goes slower, that is not so dependent on technology 24 hours a day, especially for kids, that takes them away from those things and lets them get their hands dirty with real life again. Well, you'd be looked at as weird and crazy. That's stupid. Why not take advantage of all these other things? Because the new normal is dark. Because that's what the prophecy said. Daniel's prophecy, great increase of knowledge, brings time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Jesus is saying these places were destroyed. It'd be just like when he comes back and what was going on? Normal. Life was normal, but it was dark. So we have to look at the world around us and understand we're seeing dark and it's normal. You know, and that's dangerous. That is an incredibly dangerous combination. And I think that's what Jesus is driving us toward in his prophecy of his return. The normal that you see is darkness and don't be fooled by it. So what's our winning against wickedness point for this segment? Any good in our world is tainted if it is contrived and applied in a manner that is without God. Any good in this world that is without God, is a tainted good. And what we mean by that is, if you let it follow through and follow through, it may take some time, but eventually it sours. Because godliness is a standard that's higher than humanity, and therefore we have to always remeasure ourselves by the higher standard instead of measuring ourselves by our ever-moving standard of how I feel today. So we have to understand that wickedness looks like it's winning, because evil has become the normal way that life looks. So, okay, now it's scarier. It really seems like the whole world is just embracing a new and normal evil. How do we, in all practicality, avoid participating in this new normal? If we run, where do we hide? We're constantly looking to our listeners for your feedback on our weekly episode discussions. Let us know if you'd like to hear more topics like this one or new topical suggestions. Keep your comments coming at ChristianQuestions.com and our Facebook page. We're also talking about topics in Reddit, and you should check us out helping answer questions on Quora. That's Q-U-O-R-A.com. We're engaging in convo everywhere. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. It's here that we begin to realize that we're in a tight spot. According to Scripture, we are not instructed to sequester ourselves and to be completely withdrawn from the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus told his followers to preach the gospel to the world. What we need to do is be able to hide in plain sight. What? Like the invisible man? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually more like, you know when you, you play hide and seek with a really little kid and, and what they do is they cover their, eye, their eyes and they think they're hiding? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. You know, that's us hiding in plain sight. Like, you know, I can't see you, so you obviously can't see me. No, that's not what we mean at all. Not, not even remotely close. But here's the thing. Folks, if normal is inherently dark, and dark to a point that has never been before. And I absolutely believe it is because when you look at the statistics that show the darkness that comes as a result of technology, the ease with which it's able to be reached, the depressiveness that, that people experience, you're looking at this and saying, we've got to really, really be on our guard. Now, Psalm 
chapter 10. Back to chapter, Psalm 10, prophesies our day. Psalm 10, verses uh, 11 to 14. We're actually going to take just verse 11 right now. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. See, the, those that do evil are like, what do we have to worry about? God? Really? Really? You think God is going to do something to me? <laughs> you know, it's that sense of, of, of complete and utter freedom because, yeah, there is no evidence of God anywhere. So why would I even begin to worry? You know, this sounds so much like the following very, very famous quote. We'll tell you where it comes from. Most of you are going to recognize it, I think, when we start it. But it just gives you a sense that history does repeat itself. It just seems to get worse as it goes. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incruelty. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. And that was Charles Dickens, the beginning of his story, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, in, from 1859. And Rick, um, you know, just for our listeners' uh, information, we've done many programs on, you know, when he said uh, going to heaven or going the other way, you know, there is no hellfire and torment uh, in God's plan. Uh, so he was referring to that. It's really the other way is the grave or the tomb waiting for resurrection, Um to be brought back to life in the day of judgment. So I uh, just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, you can never let those things go, can you? <laughs> no, I can't. And I'm glad. I'm glad. So here's the point. This was written in 1859. And for us, that's kind of like ancient history in some ways. There's, But see, what he's describing is the French Revolution, 1799 and, era. Yeah. Ah, 17, late 1790s. Yes, okay. Yes. Okay. So he's describing that era. And again, you'll go back and you see his description. It's like, yeah, that sounds like today. Yeah, that sounds like today. Yeah, that sounds like today. The point is there's always been trouble in the world. The time that Dickens wrote of, again, French Revolution, he made obvious connection to his own times of the mid-1800s. We, too, can look at those words and find simple, straightforward, present-day applications. And Rick, that's just like God's word. It's timeless. We yeah. today can get an amazing lesson from it, but for people centuries before us, they did too. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's, that's one of the things we need to be able to grasp. And what happens is history is cyclical, okay? We see things happen in cycles, but what we see now is evil in a very different form. Because the average, the normal, is far more godless. You know, look, back in those days, I would say to you that a lot of the God-fearing individuals were under very, very, very false pretenses because the doctrines of the church were hideous and they, they were, were forceful and they were mean and they were untrue and they were in they place to scare people into paying them money and giving them homage. Yeah, it was a fear-based um, right. Christianity. But, you know, you had, at least you had the name of God around. 
and you had different you know you, you know the idea of, of the crusades as hideous as the crusades were it was all for god you know uh, and and what we're saying is that the recognition of god even in a in a foul way is now complete is is i won't say completely gone but almost gone so we're further down and evil has found a way to not just mock the name of god as it was happening then but now it takes the name of God and completely removes it from the equation, and now there's no thought for something higher. Let's go back to Psalm 10. The pleading with God for help, because this is what happens when you see this kind of evil. Psalm 10, uh, we are verses 12 to 14. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. So it's saying, you know, arise, O God, lift up your hand. Don't forget the afflicted. Don't forget those who are suffering. And isn't that what people say here and there? Many times they say it in a mocking way to say, yeah, sure, let's see if God responds this time. But there are those who say it with legitimacy, and they have a sense of God, and they just don't get how come it's so dark. And if God is so much light, and there is so much dark, how come he lets it be? Because all of this, when you think about it from a godly perspective, is completely irrational. It just, it just is. It just is. One last stop with Steve, uh, Stephen Pinker, the NBR uh, NPR, I'm sorry, uh, interview about the world being less violent, talking about his book. And this is what he's talking about in this particular uh, segment of the interview, the, the fact that violence is not rational. Why, why is the rate of violence going down around the world? Uh, if there's a, a common denominator, in the long run, violence really is irrational. I might get harm someone else for my benefit. But on the other hand, um, he feels the same way. And if we both are constantly trying to kill each other, we're both worse off. And uh, certainly the police and government have had a huge role in reducing violence. In the international arena, of course, we don't have a global police force. And there it's partly dependent on institutions of cooperation that make it more profitable to trade with other countries than to invade them. You don't kill your customers. The rise of democracy has probably made a difference. Democracies are less likely to wage war against each other. And there's also been a change in, in norms, just what decent countries do or don't do. So, you know, he's talking about the kind of violence and he's talking about killing one another. And, and okay, you know, that, that, is a, that is a measurement. But what about the kind of violence that just does harm to someone else so you can get ahead? You know, and you say, well, it's, it's not rational. But what if... I can just, you know, do something that's not nice to you just because, you know, look, I'm more important than you. We all know that. So, you know, let me do that to you so I can get ahead of you. You know, we don't think about that so much as being violent, but it really is. Because when you, right. you step on the rights of another human being, there's a violence to that. And that is certainly not a godly way to deal with things. Now, he, so, again, he's talking about, you know, shooting people dead. Uh, and what we're saying is it's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. And again, when you go to Scripture, the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, there has continually been the same pleading for God to show himself. You know, and, and you say, 
And, and back in the Old Testament, God did show himself a whole lot more than he's showing himself right now. But even then, it, um, you see the works of wickedness and the longing for deliverance. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, is the classic pleading that we're talking about. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? and cause me to look on wickedness. Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And, you know, what a great description. Habakkuk could have written this today. Oh, yes. You know, think of all the false lawsuits. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Just think of the court systems where there is really no justice being done. And and oftentimes the justice is perverted because our sense of what justice should bring us is perverted because this increase of knowledge has not been in check by the morality that God has set. And knowledge without the checkpoints of God, godly morality will go awry. Rick, in the 50s, I had a friend that was put in jail for adultery. In the <laughs> 50s, for adultery, because there was a sense of morality. Today, eh, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, and, and, and some people can say, shame on you. And some people can say, oh, you got away with it, huh? I mean, what <laughs> happened? Where did we go wrong? Where did it all get so sour? And the answer is because of knowledge increasing, just like Daniel said, without the checkpoints of God's, of God's guidance morality, continually keeping knowledge in the straight and narrow way, it, 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 it will automatically become darkness. So Habakkuk, way back in the Old Testament, is saying, God, look, we need your help. Why do you make me look at this? This is so hideous. Justice is perverted. The wicked surround the righteousness. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. What am I supposed to do? Hide. Hide. That's what he's supposed to do. So where does Habakkuk hide? Because we said, you know, you said at the beginning of the segment, where do we run and hide, okay? Well, uh, where does Habakkuk hide from the wickedness and perverted justice? He hides in plain sight, not like the invisible man, (laughs) okay, but something very, very different. Back of chapter 2, verse 1, and then verse 3. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail, though it tarries. Wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So Habakkuk takes the violence of the, that's in front of him, and he says, I know God is with me. I'm going to watch, and I know that he will show me what to do. Now, the verse we didn't read talks about writing the vision down, making it plain so those who run can read it. And what he's telling Habakkuk to do is to be giving instruction and encouragement along the lines of truth so you can interpret what's happening in a godly fashion. And, and Jonathan, that's really what we're trying to act as a result of. Having learned that kind of truth, we're trying to 
just restate it to anyone who listened to say darkness is around, evil is there, knowledge increases and it's wonderful, but without God, wonderful turns sour and bitter and dark and, and, and damaging. But don't worry, God's got this. And Habakkuk's eyes were wide open, yeah. Rick, in this evil time, just like we should. Um, we will see God's deliverance. We just have to keep watching. We're in the world, but not of the world. Right. As a matter of fact, that's where the next verse is bringing us. Where are we supposed to hide? Okay. Habakkuk had this this uh, guard post station he, sta- he stands in. We're supposed to hide in plain sight, just like he did. Jesus is clear and tells us to be a shining light. That's how we hide. That's how you hide. You hide by being a shining light. We are protect, protected by providence. John chapter 17, 14 through 19. Now, this is Jesus' prayer before he's taken into custody and before he is tormented and tortured and then finally put to death. And he prays for us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated me because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is saying, praying to God the night before his crucifixion to protect his followers. And he's saying, set them apart, sanctify them with truth, the truth of Jesus' own words, the truth of the gospel. And he's saying, don't take them out of the world. You put me into the world, and I'm adding this, to be a light, because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I am sending them into the world like you sent me. Why? To be a light. Now, how do you hide in plain sight? Because you hide in the protective providence of God. Now, you might think that's a dangerous place to hide. And the answer is, yep, it is. Because the world doesn't like it. But does that mean you don't do it? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus stand? And so, to hide means to actually say, I will take the providence of God and I will wear it as I walk in Jesus' footsteps, come what may. Because the great promise, Jonathan, is it doesn't matter what happens to us now because this is about eternity. Being faithful unto death by standing for truth is what this is really all about. That's how we hide. Now, it sounds odd, but that's how we hide. Hide in the light of God's world, word and the light of Jesus' example. What's our winning against wickedness point for this segment? Well, Rick, for a true Christian, to hide from wickedness is to stand for godly truth. Okay. Hiding from wickedness is standing from, for truth. You see, because when you stand for truth, wickedness has no place in your heart, mind, or soul. So you don't allow it in. You do what Jesus did. That's hard to do, but it is so incredibly necessary for us to accomplish. Okay. I'm not sure if this whole hiding in plain sight is supposed to make me feel better or worse. So, what do we watch out for? Both avoiding the wicked world as well as seeing God's will unfold? 
We have a simple yet powerful request for you. Can you think of someone who'd enjoy listening to this podcast? Send them a text message right now. Tell them to check out our Christian Questions podcast. That's one of the great ways to spread the word. Thank you for sharing our weekly conversation with every single person you know. Well, who you want to tell is still up to you. Thanks for texting and listening. Let's go back to Rick and Jonathan as we take a closer look at our topic. Essentially, we want to define those things we are to be running from as well as those things we are to be running to. We will find that it is always easier to escape darkness and evil when we have an appropriate destination. Clear guidelines help make our decisions more factual and less emotional. And Jonathan, the whole thing about evil, let me, let me, just, let me just get off on a small tangent here for a second. Okay. Too often... As Christians, we feel something. And we think, and I'm being blunt here, that because we're Christians, that feeling must be from God. So I must should, should follow it. But if it is not holding up to the highest standards of godliness and truth and righteousness and a, and a complete lack of hypocrisy, then it is not a feeling that comes from God. A lot of times we say, well, it's the Spirit moving in me. No, it's not. It's just your emotions. So stop. If it's not in line with godliness and honor and and truth and sanctified thinking and action and being the person you say you're going to be and not being somebody uh, you know, in front of some people and somebody else in front of others, and that's actually what our subject is next week, then it's all a lie. So let's be real. We want to know what we're running from and what we're running to. So we need to really focus on this uh, in this final segment. Back to Psalm 10. Here is where we see that God is there and will answer clearly. Psalm 10, the last few verses, 15 through 18. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who was on the earth will no longer cause terror. So, you know, it basically says break the arm of the wicked. Now you can say, oh, God is, you know, promoting, you know, violence. Look, what it's saying is take the wicked's ability to influence away. That's what it's saying, okay? The, the psalmist is saying, stand up, God, and, 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 and retake what looks like is, is lost and forgotten. And that is something that we all want to have happen. And the, for, right. and the fortunate good news is, I should say the fact of the matter is that it, it will happen, but not probably as soon or as easily as we'd like it to. So what do we run from and what do we run to? We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 5, chapter 5, verses 20 and 23. And we're just going to read this verse in just little statements because each statement has a whole winning against wickedness point. So we've given you one winning against wickedness point uh, for each segment up to this point. We're going to give you a whole bunch in this segment here because Isaiah 5, 20 to 23 is really powerful along these lines. What's the first phrase in verse 20? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Okay, woe to those. Morality needs to have a clear basis to guide behavior. 
So the question we have to ask ourselves, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, is what is your conscience tuned to? What makes your conscience decide I'm doing right? Just because you have a conscience doesn't mean it's a godly one. First Timothy 4, 1-2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Okay, you know, that gives you a really bad description of a really bad conscience. And this conscience, it's spoken of as being seared with a hot iron. When you, when, when, if, you're, if you put a hot iron on your skin, now that's horrible. But what you do is you kill the nerves. That's right. You deaden it. Right. And now you can't feel anymore. And sometimes, even we as Christians can get into that state of mind. And Rick, the context of 1 Timothy is actually talking about Christian leaders falling down this pathway. So when we look at saying, are the wicked winning? Look, wickedness is not, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from it. As a matter of fact, you need to be on your guard, especially if you are involved in a lot of a lot of traditions that lead us off of the path of the words of Jesus. You know, we got to be really careful about this, these things. Winning against wickedness point for this, for the woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Maintain godly conscience and attain clear insight into moral issues. All right. Godly conscience, conscience and a clear insight when it comes to morality. Not just a conscience, a godly conscience. Don't fool yourself. Next phrase in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Okay, so woe. We're going to add that word because it was woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to them. Any truth that does not harmonize with the light of God is tainted and should be treated as such. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Okay, simple phrase. If Satan looks like an angel of light, and those of us who don't know that it's him looking like an angel of light, see the angel of light and say, oh look, an angel of light. And then they're deceived. Because Satan understands that he can take light, he can take good, and he can turn it, not quickly, but subtly, slowly, so that we end up falling into something, and before you know it, you're down a road, you say, wait, you wake up, you say, wait, wait, how did I get here? That is Satan um, disguising himself as an angel of light. You know, and it's this, this part of Isaiah 5 is, woe to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. James 1.17 gives us the other side of the coin here. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So now, you know, we've been saying that anything good in, in, in this world that is not godly is tainted. And now this says everything good thing is from God above. Let's understand how to put those two things together. Goodness with godliness equals peace and contentment for life for your life and your children's life and their children's life. Goodness without godliness eventually disrupts our lives. That's what we're saying. 
It's got to be godly to have its good be able to last. And light can be deceiving. We've got to be really careful. The winning against wickedness point here? Light is only as reliable as its source. Be guided by light that emulates from God. All right. The the light has got to come from the right source. Let's be careful to not be fooled. Because we are in an age where wickedness does look like it's winning. So be alert. So back to Isaiah chapter 5. It was woe to those who call evil good and good evil, to those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And what's the next phrase? Woe to those who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, I think this really focuses on our sensory stimulation. It needs monitoring now more than ever. And uh, Jonathan, I just can't help but think back to the first segment when we were talking about the statistics about you know the the, the rampantness of, of internet technology and, and, and the growth of pornography and the statistics of depression amongst young people and all of that. That's sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. You don't kid yourselves. All of that, all of those, especially with pornography and things like that, all that they can bring you is destruction in your life. All it brings you is, first of all, you're, I, I, I can't get started on this because we'll run out of time. It is just deadly. I'm going to leave it at that. So Philippians 4.8 is a great way to put ourselves out of this sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet thing. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You know, it doesn't say, say, think about these things periodically. It says dwell on them. Go ahead. And Rick, the battle is between the ears in the mind. Yep. We have got to fight our thoughts to get them in line with God's righteousness. You know, and thoughts come into our heads all the time, right? All the time. So do you say, here, have a seat, like a cup of coffee? Or do you say... No home for you here because I... Does that honor God or not? Right, right. See, I dwell on what is lovely and good repute and excellent and right and pure and honorable and true. And if it doesn't fit those things, you have no business in my head. Yeah, you entered and there's the door, you know? You got it. So what's our winning against wickedness point here? Daily choose what thoughts and stimulus will remain in your head and heart. You can't keep the thoughts from coming in necessarily, but you can keep them from staying. And if we allow thoughts to stay in our heads, Jonathan, they will eventually trickle down and find a way into our heart. Make no mistake. And they'll produce actions that can really damage your life. The heart of man is very deceptive. Now look, it's got good points, but it is very deceptive. And folks, most of us know deep, deep down when our heart is bringing us down the wrong road. Most of us don't have the courage, the guts to stand up against it. We just let it go because it's how we feel. That's letting wickedness win in your own experience. So what is the, uh, oh, we we did the wickedness, uh, winning against wickedness point about choosing what thoughts and stimulus remain in our heads and our heart. So now we're on to verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to what? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And Rick, pride is always trying to rear its ugly head. We have just got to keep it down. Yeah, and that is a hard, 
task. That is not something that comes easily, and that's something that for most of us, I would say, I know for me, it's a matter of reminding myself again and again and again and again and checking myself again and again and again and again, and still you mess it up. Ego has to be kept in check. Let our wisdom not be ours, but let it come from above. First Peter 5, 6 to 7, this is where you know we, we have to just make a decision. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. You know, most of humanity wants, the, wants to be exalted, wants to be looked up to, wants to be in the limelight, you know, our five seconds of fame or whatever it is. We want to have that sense of accomplishment and saying, and others saying, wow, look at, look at, look at what I was able to do. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and the exaltation comes when he says it's appropriate, in the conditions that he says it's appropriate, after the circumstances you've gone through to prove that it's appropriate. So if we seek God's exaltation, what it takes is pure, unadulterated humility here and now. And what cares we have, we give to him. It's that simple. What's the winning against wickedness point for the woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight? Realize that all sin begins with an inflative perspective of yourself. When you have an inflated perspective of yourself, it's just downhill. Put a pin in that baby. And just and take that's why humility is so important. Rick. It is. Take the air out. Okay? Take the air out. Verse 22 of uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Okay, so this verse even goes into, you know, the idea of party hardy and all of that. Our actions and participation need to be based on moral and godly intentions, period. Just that's the way it is. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So, so Jonathan, there's two aspects to this verse. Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So if you're in a job you don't like, you know, you're doing chores you don't like, whatever the situation is that you don't like, say, you know what? If I had to do this to honor God, how am I going to do it? That's right, exactly. And, you know, and, and the idea is doing good things, because he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong, and that will p- come without partiality. So stay on the right side. Woe to those who are heroes in, 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 in partying and making uh, things out of control. See, Jonathan, it's, not, it's a matter of being controlled in a godly way. And folks, yeah, you know, it sounds like, well, you're taking all the fun out of life. No, we're just telling you that the fun in life is very different than the world paints it because the world's right is dark. And how about the peace that passeth all understanding from God, having that in your heart? That's a a right life. and, And, you know, that's a choice. That's a choice, and then it's a series of actions because God's peace does not come just because we want it. You're right. We have to walk the walk. So what's the winning against Wick in this point here? Except that worldly activity lasts for but a moment and then fades. All right, and we're near the end of our time. Verse 23 of Isaiah 5. 
Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Okay, our ability to rationalize must never be confused with our appropriate opportunities to compromise. Matthew 6.33, one of my favorite verses of all time. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Woe to the, those uh, who justify the wicked for a bribe. You know, the idea is do things the right way and be focused on the right things by seeking God's kingdom first. Our final winning against wickedness point. Fight the get-ahead mentality with a bless-and-honor-others mentality. You know, and Jonathan, that's really what it takes here. You know, we look at the world around us and we think, okay, are the wicked winning? Well, it sure looks like it because normal has become evil and evil has become normal. So we take that scenario and we say, we are stuck. We're stuck in this vortex of downward activity. The good news, folks, is you can hide in plain sight by standing on your own two feet of righteousness and putting on the armor of God and having the light of Jesus shine in you and through you so that you can be an example to those around you, even if they don't like it, of what is good. Because God's kingdom is coming. Wickedness will be put away forever. Make no mistake. Wickedness will not win. Be a part of the righteousness. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you enjoyed being with us today. Important, important subject. And make sure you understand that in your own life, wickedness has no place. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, folks, we're going to be talking about, and this is a big one, what makes a Christian a hypocrite? Yeah, Christians can be hypocrites. How does that happen? Talk to you next week. 